Just the general tone of this conversation, I need to listen to more episodes. I think that doesn't get nearly enough attention. So you guys are doing a service with this type of podcast. All right. Hey there, Adam. How's it going? Hey, Conrad. Going great. We are in the middle of November, approaching Thanksgiving. So we are in the thick of planning for 2024, which is exciting, but challenging at the same time. So we've got a lot going on the work side of things. But before we start chatting about work and, and the podcast, I, I will do a disservice if I don't share a sports update. So I've, I've got some sports I need to update. So one, the Bledsoe-Brady story that we've been tracking, Conrad, with my nephew, unfortunately not fallen in his favor. He's the Bledsoe side of things, has been able to figure out how to be just good enough to hold on to his spot. So we've got to wait, but there is a playoff coming up starting on Saturday. So there's still hope that he could find his way in. We actually have a, a new addition to the discussions. My oldest, who went off to UNC Charlotte this year, her boyfriend went to MIT and is playing basketball at MIT. So pretty talented. And uh, he's a freshman. He's getting playing time. He's contributing. So it's exciting to see him and be able to stream all these different games. But the ones that uh, obviously I hold near and dear to, to me are, are the, the boys that I'm coaching on soccer. So Middle school season ended. Good news. We had the sports awards last week and uh, my guy got uh, offensive player of the year. So that's fantastic. And now we're on to the club side of things. We've got a, a tournament coming up this weekend and then a, a following one the week after Thanksgiving. But the way that I'll, I'll tie this into the discussion today is, and I know I've mentioned this a couple of times about how I'm transitioning the thought process with this club team into thinking about more long-term. And for a few years, I was trying to figure out how do I hold this team together? How do I build a successful team? How can I get enough players on it? We live in a remote area. It's hard to get the right players. And now that I've built this team, I've expanded my view of the team and gone to a different town and brought on some players. I've now shifted my perspective to really what it comes down to a five-year plan. And that five-year plan is to get some of the boys on my team to play at a collegiate level for soccer. So that's the goal that I've got in mind. That's the goal that I'm talking to the boys about. And we've started to think differently and started to act differently as a result of this. Two weeks ago, my wife is a photographer. She came out to the practice and we did a team photo and then we did headshots, which sounds pretty typical. We've been doing those since we played rec. But the difference is that we went completely over the top with the pictures. So we've got lightning and we've got smoke and we've got flashes behind what's going on. So we spent the weekend going through Photoshop templates and trying to figure out how we're going to make these exciting. And it's been a huge hit. So everybody is sharing them. We've got a new Instagram page for the team. So what I'm trying to help everybody understand is one, the excitement side of things, but two, to start to think about that long term, you've got to get your social media presence. You've got to start getting your highlights together. So we're starting to think about things a little bit differently. And that ties me into the guest today. So not directly related to the vacation rental space, but I think it's an important part for us to maybe pause on some of our current discussions around vacation rentals and start to think about mindset and start to think about how can we think and do things differently. If everybody's heading to one direction, the quickest way to succeed is figure out what is that other direction that we can go and find and tap into and start doing things differently. And I think today's guest is, is going to have some really interesting discussions about how we can think differently and what we might be able to use to think differently. So I'll, I'll wait for him to describe that, but over to you, Conrad. Yeah, a lot of layers to pull apart there. I don't know where to begin, to be honest with you. But I think we've made this comparison before, wasn't it? Brady gets knocked out in the 01 AFC Championship game, and then there was the debate yeah. about Bledsoe. So it's not over for your, I think it's your cousin or your nephew, sorry, memory serves. But yeah, it's we'll see how it all plays out. And I trust you didn't wake up at 9.30 a.m. and turn on the Germany Patriots game. If so, your eyes will not forgive you for that one. Not not a good look. Um, perhaps they I need. Not, perhaps I wisely slept through it. 
Yeah, perhaps the, they need a new mindset, which kind of brings in today's guest. So Keegan, we're excited to welcome you here to the show and we'll go through a lot with you. But um, if you don't mind, maybe Keegan, if you could just give like a few minute background about yourself, and how you got started. But before you do that, could you also let us know a song that best describes you as well? Oh, a song that best describes me. Um, I can tell you the song that I was playing just before we started. Hypnotized, Notorious B.I.G. I don't know about you guys, but anytime before I come on something like this, I'm trying to get the energy flowing. And I, I know for me, Biggie, back, I was in grade seven. I'm going to age myself a little bit here. When his album came out, and I've just been a hip-hop fan ever since. And so before I come on to any of these lives or run big meetings, I crank that tune just to get the frequency and the vibe set. Doesn't describe me whatsoever, but what does describe me is just a guy that will get hyped up or try to get hyped up for moments like this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's I think a great addition. Good. Yeah, go ahead. We, we haven't had Biggie yet, so that's a great addition to the list. So. But we also have not totally surprised people, and I think we just totally surprised Keegan. I did not give him the heads up. Oh, my bad. Yeah, yeah. There you go, Keegan. You're, you're a quick thinker on your feet, so the song must help in many ways. Um, this is a total sidebar, too. I was doing speed training stuff recently, Adam. Um, and when you put on a certain song, like, you can go a little bit faster. Like, I think your body can just, like, versus just nothing yes. in your ears. Or sometimes I listen to podcasts when I do that. And I'm like, the problem is most podcasts are, we're doing a podcast right now, but it's not, like, getting you emotional, right, in the same way that music does. So I'm with you, Keegan. And music, I think, can make your body react in different ways. And certainly the way that you speak and present yourself can change, too. So thank you. We uh, caught you flat-footed, but you caught it very nicely. So so could you then continue and give us a little bit more background about yourself, Mindful Meds, and how we got connected? Because you're obviously not in the vacational industry as many people on our show are. Yeah, actually, what's ironic is I, I originally was. The first business I ever started was in the vacation rental industry. Oh, really? As want, we can start there. But yeah, back in 2014, I was living in Victoria. You had just mentioned you have a client in Victoria. So my name is Keegan, actually coming at you guys live from Vernon, British Columbia, West Coast, Canada. But back in 2014, I was living in Victoria and my soon-to-be wife and I were going to Bali for six weeks. And we had this one-bedroom apartment right on the water, beautiful apartment. And I started looking into, at that time, it was like, how can we make some money so that we could extend our trip? And rent in Victoria is probably, at the time, was probably one of the most expensive in the country. And I think it probably still is, to be honest. But I started calling all sorts of management companies to see if anybody would manage our property short term. And there was nothing out there. There was literally nothing out there except for one company. And, uh, and so we went on this trip. We went to Bali and I'm sitting on the beach thinking, there's got to be a better solution for this. And this is at the time when Airbnb was just getting into the mainstream i know they had been around before that but guys like you and i were just starting to book airbnb trips or at least i was at that point and so i had this idea when we were in bali what about airbnb management and i'm sure you guys talk a lot about this and maybe it's a big part of your business today but the reality is, is because i couldn't find somebody that could rent our property out short term i came back from bali had all of these ideas i was actually looking for a new business at that point in time and I remember calling the one company that, that was doing this. I actually remember the name of the company too. It's, uh, it was this French guy named JP by the Sea. And I called him up and I pretended that I was going to be a, a client of his or interested in his service. And he showed up at my apartment 
and and basically gave me his full spiel. And I just looked at this and just thought, man, if this guy can have success in this industry, I know that I can. And I've looked at opportunities that same way, where it's just like this person or this group is leading this industry. And I'll look at it and I'll be like, I think I can do a better job. And so I formed a company, right? Really, like honestly, right then and there called Rent Gurus. And, and it lasted for a couple of years. And it was my very first taste of working as an entrepreneur on my own. So with, with no other partners or working underneath somebody. And why this project was important to me was because it really set up the next business that I got into. And what I realized was it's not as easy as it might sound. This Airbnb management stuff, is, it's, it sounds simple, but the reality is the gap that I found that was really challenging was the cleaning piece. And we had hired all these cleaning companies to, to look over the Airbnbs. And you guys know this, the reviews are everything, right? And my goal was to create all of my clients into, into Airbnb super hosts. And so if one cleaning wasn't done to a 10 out of 10 standard, especially at that time, I don't know if the industry's still this way, where you'll get that one asshole client that found one hair in a sink and, uh, and all of a sudden you get a zero out of 10 on clean, you know, cleanliness. That's the way I felt about it. And so I actually stepped in and was doing all the cleaning for my company. I just, I needed to stand out and that was the way that I did it. But it wasn't about standing out to, on, on Airbnb, it was standing out to my clientele, to, to the owners of these properties. And what came to happen for me was these owners, because they'd walk in occasionally and I'd be on my hands and knees scrubbing a toilet, um, they looked at that and they, they just thought, wow, I'm in some serious good hands here. And when my next project started, I, I jumped completely into franchising. I actually got the master franchisee rights to, at the time, the fastest growing franchise brand in North American history out of San Diego. And I got the rights for all of Canada. But to get it, I needed to fundraise 780 grand. And that came mostly from the clients that I had that came in and saw how hard I was working on their properties. So it's interesting because we're not here to talk about that today, but I do have a slight background in Airbnb management, a lot of respect for it. I can tell you that if I had a property today that I wanted Airbnb out, I would 100% rely on, on a management company. It's not, it, it's far more work than I think people understand. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a lot of pieces to pick apart there. But one thing that I think is common in our industry too, Keegan, is a lot of people get stressed as the wrong. Maybe that's too simplistic of a word to use to describe what people go through. But you experienced it. So it's you've seen under the hood a little bit. There's a lot of things that need to go right for you to have a successful business. And a lot of it's not necessarily directly in your control. It feels indirectly in your control. Like you can hire the cleaner, you can try to vet their work, but then they can drop the ball and not show up or not clean properly. And then you lose your super host and then you get deranked on Airbnb and then you get your bookings right over there, or the same thing can happen on other platforms, or you may have issues with your website, and then you can't rank there too. So I, I'm involved in another project where with this with an author called Brooke Foutson, he's the founder of Inventory, which is this owner management software platform. But they recently wrote a book about vacational secrets. And one of the most common things that other property managers mentioned in the book is not giving themselves enough time to relax or not ever disconnecting from the business. 
the problem with this business is that you feel like you're tied to your phone or tied to your computer 24 seven, like at any moment, a guest could call at 2am and things may be going fine. And then you have problems and issues pop up. So a lot of people I think in our industry do struggle with like mental health, or they struggle with kind of the emotional burden of this business. And it can be challenging. There's certainly times of year where the property manager themselves has no free time. If it's 4th of July, if you're in a summer market, or if it's the first weekend in a ski market where they take all those issues. So maybe, I don't know, Adam, if you want to add in any color on top of that, but that's a common thing that I think is people in our industry. I will, I, for sure. No, I, yeah. I think that's 100% right. And I, I think that, Keegan, to your point, the, the idea that this is harder than you expect, that's a message that we share on a regular basis. I think that there are a lot of people get into this thinking that it's pretty pretty straightforward. We all get the concept of what we're trying to accomplish, but actually going out there and executing that is, is pretty challenging. The one thing I would add to, to your point there, Conrad, is it's not only the individuals that are in the business that are impacted by it as well. It definitely has an impact on the family around you. And I haven't been in this industry for 15 plus years. When you're in a role where you are expected to answer emails, answer phone calls, answer texts at all times of day and throughout the weekend, and there really is no time to shut off, that does get relatively stressful. Yeah, it's a simplistic term that maybe is a little general, but I think there's an anxiety level that you almost constantly have because you don't know when that text is going to come through or when that email is going to come through and you're constantly checking and you're waiting for it. I've been in roles a number of times in this industry where that's expected. And even if it's not explicit, it's just understood that, hey, you're always going to be available and you're always going to be the one that's picking up the phone. And I think that's very stressful, but it's not only stressful to the person that has to do it, it's stressful to the rest of the family because the kids know that and the, the wife or the husband knows that and everybody's waiting on the side. Oh, dad was off at the beach, but he's on the phone because he's going to be on the phone for the next hour dealing with a problem. And I think that's a, a stress that in this industry, one, people don't realize, but two, I think we've got to do a better job of managing throughout the industry. And, and I think that might be a nice segue to where Keegan uh, can take us is we've started to hear more about different ways to try to manage some of the stress and anxiety that might, we might have in our lives. And I, I practice a number of those. Uh, Conrad, you just mentioned speed training. Physical fitness, I think, is a great opportunity to go out and burn some of that extra energy that you might have. Meditation, mindfulness, whatever it might be. But there's a number of different paths that you can take that I think have a lot of validity. And I think Keegan, his next adventure that he went on that he can he can talk to us about, I think is one of those areas that offers some opportunity for us. And we're starting to hear more and more discussions of it. I mean, I'll let Keegan get into it, but Matt Landau has talked about his experience relatively recently, pretty publicly at a, at a number of different conferences with the path that Keegan will mention. So I think there's an opportunity for us to start thinking about uh, mental health in this industry quite a bit. Sure. Yeah. So to, to speak on mental health, I was pulling some numbers this morning, just Pardon me, because I'm up in Canada, but I was really interested about what was going on down in the U.S. and read something today. Actually, it was a Gary Vee post today that 46 million Americans suffer from some form of addiction. And so there's undoubtedly people that are going to listen to this that fall into that category. We're talking one in five, some in some places, one in four people. And that was me. And so when I was... Man, it, to, for me to segue or to lead us to one of the work that I'm doing today, I think I got to explain how I got to, to this project because it wasn't just, oh, I was looking for a new business. This was something completely different. And, but I will say this. When I was 22, I was in my third year of university, and I was on the biggest winning streak of my entire life. And the trajectory that my life was going 
as a 22 year old was exactly where I wanted it to be. I was proud of the guy that looked at himself when he brushed his teeth at night. And I was excited about the future. I was excited about where I was going, but little do I, did I know that one night was going to change the, the, the next nine years of my life. And so at the time I'd been with the same girl for three and a half years. And, and I got a phone call. I was in the UK visiting my dad and I got a call from her and believe it or not, man, she had just gone to see one of the top psychics in North America. And this psychic had told her that I had cheated on her one weekend, like 18 months prior to this. And that story alone is a really gold story that we'll, I'll share with you another time. But for the sake of timing, I'll, I'll just skip through a bit of this. But the reality is, is I, I came clean on that phone call. And my life, it, it changed my life. Essentially what happened is I got back from the trip to the UK, started going to university again. And where I went to university was about two hours away from where I grew up. So a lot of my high school buddies were out there. I was in class with people that I knew. And I remember showing up to class and not being able to even make eye contact with people. It, it was the first time that I, I had experienced real depression. I literally was becoming a different version of myself and it happened like this. And so within three weeks of that, I dropped out of university because I couldn't go. And honestly, man, like if you asked me six months before that, there was nothing stopping me from graduating from university. The summer before that, I had been working. I had a summer job in Portland, Oregon, and I was in sales. I was the rookie of the year for this company. And they had hired me to go and manage a sales team in New York City when I was 23 years old. So I dropped out in February. I turned 23 in February. And, and all of a sudden, just to get to sleep, I'm taking two or three fingers of vodka. And that really became my life for the next nine years. I, I slowly got more and more into the booze. It was, it was a coping mechanism for me. It was something that allowed me to shut my brain off and fall asleep. But fast forward five months and I show up in New York City, I don't look like this anymore. I'm 50 pounds overweight. I would be going to meetings with alcohol in my breath. I was, anybody been to New York City in, in, in June or July? It's 100% humidity. And so if you have that body type that sweats, like I did at the time, I was just a leaky faucet, man. Like I, I was just a speck of who I was. And I was still able to go and make sales and at the time, fake it. And that's the sad part of addiction is so many people actually know how to fake it. And, and that's what makes it really challenging for people to get help is because they're so good at hiding what the, what the truth is at the underbelly of it. But I remember in New York being on the 28th floor, we used to take guys up to the top of our building and we'd bring up all our champagne, we'd smoke cigars on big weeks, big days that we all had good sales. And I remember going up to the top of this building and looking down, I was on my own and looking down over the, the ledge, which is about waist high and looking down at the ground. And that summer in New York City, 2008, there was a garbage strike. And so the, gar the ground was just littered with garbage. 
And my parents retired in 2007, really young. And they were on a trip around the world. And I just remember that they were going to have to leave Fiji to come and scrape my body off the ground. I was so close to jumping off this building. Still to this day, I did. I was saved, essentially. But what ended up happening in my life was I started to put these little carrots to chase. So for me that summer, this is in June, um, my older sister, who's my idol and, and really good friend, she, she was getting married August 26th of that summer. And I don't think I would have survived unless I had the wedding to attend. And so for me, it became just get to the wedding. And then from there, I'll make a decision as to whether or not I'm going to kill myself. Because for anybody that's had a weekend of partying, even a Friday, Saturday night, think about the anxiety you have on Monday morning. At this time, I had literally been drinking for 150 days straight. And I, I really didn't see any exit. I had no plans on coming home from New York City. And... I remember walking through the airport. I was living in Calgary at the time to go to my sister's wedding and I'm walking through the airport and I hadn't had a drink in about six hours and my heart was just pounding. And, uh, and I remember going through customs and reaching for my passport. And for the first time, my hand was so shaky, I couldn't even open my passport. I was going through extreme alcohol withdrawals. And in that moment, I knew I had a drinking problem. And it was scary because I was only 23 years old. Any questions so far? No, this is great. I appreciate the background. And it's a great path for us to understand how you've come to the journey that you're on now. Yeah, man. It's, uh, I'm going to fast forward. This story is, is, is generally, like if I was to be speaking for a group, about an hour long. But for the sake of, of just trying to squeeze it all in today, what I'm going to do is just jump to... I never stopped drinking. So at 23, 24, 25, 26, I didn't get into rehab until I was 31 years old. And so by that time, I had been drinking every day for nine years. And, and in the end, I was the first guy at the liquor store at nine o'clock in the morning every day. I was still running these companies. Mind you, I, like, I mean, I don't even know how I did it, to be honest, but I was still able to somehow show up but I had this really bad drinking problem. And, and one day I never killed myself, but I wanted to die. And I can tell you that I was, and this is this still to this day is really hard to speak out loud, but I, I, I was manifesting my day. I remember going to the hospital and I was losing my eyesight. I was losing feeling in my arms and my legs. And I thought for sure I had something that was going to take me out. And, and that's what I was gunning for. I was trying to kill myself with alcohol. But what ended up happening actually saved my life. I got into the hospital and the doctor came in and she goes, I don't even know how you're sitting straight. She goes, your blood sugar is so high right now. I have never seen anybody with blood sugar this high that's not in a coma. And I, I said, what does that mean? She goes, your pancreas is toast. It's no longer producing insulin and you're a type one diabetic. You're going to be here for the next several days so that we can f figure out how to safely bring your blood sugar back to normal. And so my family flew in and I remember being in the hospital and just realizing 
everybody's going to know. I, up until that point, I was just like isolating and I wouldn't be, I wasn't transparent with anybody. I was hiding this. And, and I remember being in the hospital for three days. My parents were there and I just remember how scared everybody was, including me. And, and what I did was I started to replay what my funeral was looking like. Who was going to show up at my funeral? What was going to be said about my life? And, uh, and the truth is, it was just on repeat in my head for three straight days. And I really didn't like what was being said and the impact that I left on the planet. And, and so off I went. I went to rehab. I was absolutely petrified. And I ended up going to rehab just off the west coast of Vancouver on a place called Bowen Island. And it, it saved my life. And honestly, guys, I was in there for 28 days. And the last day that we were in this rehab facility, I'm just going to share one story that, that really brought me to this project, was the director of the facility asked everybody to get in this circle. And by this time, what rehab is all about is about trying to reverse engineer how the hell you got there. And it's this space that is created so that you can try to figure out the trauma that literally got you there. And because of that, you get to know the group that you're in there with on a level that you probably don't even know your own family on. And, but here's what happened. So we get in the circle and she goes, look to the person to the left of you. And you got to think, I was thinking that we were going to get this pat on the ass to go back out into the world and to go and take on the next leg of life. But this is really what happened. She goes, look to the person to the left of you. And so we all swing our necks and we're making this eye gazing contact right through each other's pupils. And she goes, that person's dead in 365 days or less. And you could just palpably feel the room, the energy shift. Now everybody's crying and everybody's going like, oh, we didn't expect to hear that. And she goes, look to the person to the right. And she goes, that person's back in one of these facilities in less than 365 days. And so in that moment, I realized that I needed to take my skill set and figure out how to give back to this community that I was now a part of, the mental health community, the addicted community. And, uh, and I had no idea what that was going to look like. My mission in the beginning was to go and make as much money as I possibly could so that every year for the rest of my life, I was going to send somebody into a rehab facility. And that's the path that I took. And, and, but this is what happened. Nine months out of rehab, I get a phone call from a guy that I was in there with. And he goes, have you heard? And I said, no, I haven't heard anything. He goes, you might want to grab a seat. And so I did, honestly. I sat down on the couch in my living room. And he goes, listen, man. And he starts naming eight people out of the 30 I was in there with were dead. Five overdoses, two suicides, and, uh, and a murder. And I just couldn't believe it. My jaw hit the floor. It was one of the most impactful conversations I'd ever had. And what I've come to learn about the addiction community is these numbers, this isn't just this rehab facility. It's every group that goes to rehab in every major city, in every major country. The odds of surviving one of these are very low. I'm talking less than three to 5%, guys. 
Yeah, that, that was the conversation that changed my life. So I started to try to figure out how can I make an impact? And I was in this building businesses for the wrong reasons. It was always about the money. It was always how quickly can we make money? It was always, I don't care who I'm working with. If the idea was right and the money was going to flow, I was willing to do whatever it took to, to be a part of that. And so I mentioned that they got into franchising. And so I went and did that for a few years. This is after this phone call. And I remember driving to work one day, we had this massive 4,000 square foot downtown Calgary office. And I got to the set of lights and my heart was pounding. I was three and a half years without a drink at this point. And, and I remember walking into the elevator and hitting the up button to my office. And I had my first anxiety attack. And I realized that I was, my whole life had to change. I was surrounded by the wrong people. I was chasing the things that ultimately didn't mean anything to me. It was to all the entrepreneurs out there, how unfulfilling is the ride when the focus is simply just on making money? At least in my experience, it was not rewarding. I never felt like I had a sense of purpose. And I, that day, I, I, I called my mom and dad. I called my soon-to-be wife. And I said, we need to have a meeting because I'm about to go to the liquor store and I need your help. And I was terrified. I literally was so lucky to have that moment. But I called this emergency meeting and they were able to walk me off this ledge. But the truth is, is I needed some support. I needed more than their words. And what ended up happening for me was I got introduced to a mushroom farmer. Literally a week after this conversation, I got introduced to a mushroom farmer. And this is 2019. When we're talking about psilocybin mushrooms, at least in Canada, this wasn't even a conversation until 2021. So this is way before it's time. And especially in Calgary, nobody was talking about this. And truthfully, I went, I got, he sent me some mushrooms. Um, and I went to Walmart. I bought this pill press and made some capsules, some microdosing capsules, and had no idea what to expect. And I'll tell you, day 12 of this microdosing journey that I took, I had this remarkable experience. I ended up having a journal and writing a three-page phone call to my ex-business partners. And why that's significant to me is because both of my partners were narcissists. So that was a part of the challenges that I, I was engulfed in this business, but I was working with narcissists and, and really just hated what I was doing because I hated the people that I was around. But I had to figure out how to break away from this business and do it in a way where it wasn't two rams colliding. And, and so I did. I, I picked up the phone, basically, word for word, read this message that I had written down. And uh, I got the exact exit I was looking for. I've never spoken to either one of them again to this day. And that was my first moment with microdosing that was just this aha moment that went, I am problem solving differently. I looked at that challenge completely differently than any other time in my life. And it got me fascinated about mushrooms. It, it was a moment that I just thought, there's something real here. 
And yeah, I'm just going to allow you guys a chance to, to interject a little bit and then I'll maybe wrap that up. But that's what led me to mushrooms. Yeah. I, no, I there's, think that, there's so much. Go there, ahead, Adam. And I appreciate you you sharing your story, Keegan, because the, the background of it is is important to understand how you landed on the path that you landed. But a couple of things strike me there. Yeah. So I, I just I hear the concept of, of addiction. Obviously, that's that's terrible. But to also hear the, the start of your story and understand that a, a relatively what might seem like a benign event can actually be a traumatic event that actually cascades into what ended up being nine years of, of a very difficult situation. And as we talk about uh, mental health in, in our particular industry, I think you, you could extrapolate that to just the general population. You start to wonder how many of us are on the edge of whatever that particular trauma might be. Uh, and it's a scary thought to think that we're all walking that fine line of, of trying to manage it. And I think that the challenge is that we probably aren't managing it very well. And we're just maybe self-medicating to your point with the alcohol on the path that you went down. And I think that we're all, a lot of us are stuck in a position where we're trying to figure out how to, to manage those difficult situations on a daily basis. So I appreciate you sharing that background. From my perspective, it's been a long time and I'm curious about your thoughts around macro versus micro, because I think that a lot of us, in my case in particular, I think this is, is somewhat general. You end up with your first experience with mushrooms is in college with a bunch of buddies where you end up just having some sort of macro dose. And I don't even know how to define that. You'll be able to define that better than I can, but some yeah. sort of larger experience where you are opened up. And that was my first approach to it. And when I got first aware of it, I said, yes, this is a different perspective that I have. And I don't know, and I'm hoping maybe you can fill in the gaps for us around how, what does that type of experience do to you? Because I, I do think that experience has stuck with me to this day of being a really eye-opening experience and have a different perspective of life after that. So there's that one macro, but how is that different on a micro level? What does that do? And if it is changing the way you look at things, how does the macro versus the micro change things? Yeah, really good question. So our focus with mindful meds is on microdosing, so it's the micro level. But the truth is both micro and macro serve a tremendous purpose. And so when we're talking about microdosing, we're talking about a subperceptual amount of psilocybin. Psilocybin is the active ingredient inside mushrooms, similar to THC is the active ingredient with cannabis. Um, and so you're very much still on planet Earth. I can still operate a vehicle. You and I would be able to have this conversation. You would absolutely have no idea if I was on a microdose or not. Um, jump over to macrodosing. Macrodosing serves a tremendous purpose. And I think actually one of the studies that I want to share with you guys is a study that was done in 2019 on macrodosing by John Hopkins University. And we're talking about alcohol use disorder and it's something near and dear to my heart. But I, I mentioned at the start of the call that there's 46 million Americans that are addicted to something. And that's a staggering number. Most of those are opiates and alcohol. And so 2019, even before I get into the study, a macrodosing journey is something that you need to be ready for. You need to be prepared for. This is not something that everybody should be jumping into. You need to be doing this in the right environment with a ton of intention. So not just mindlessly eating mushrooms, crossing your fingers and hoping something's going to work. You need to do this in the right set and setting 
And you need to be in a surroundings that is going to find that combination. What you're going to find with the macrodosing journey is that the mushrooms are really going to show you what you need to see, not what you want to see. And so for many people, when you hear a friend or a colleague say, oh my God, I had this terrifying experience on the mushrooms. Well, a lot of times those, that terrifying experience is actually showing you what you need to focus on, what you're running from, what you're hiding. It's terrifying for exactly. a reason because you don't but, want to but, face But the truth is, back to your point of what you just brought up, how many people have these traumas that at the underbelly of it, that's how the addiction starts. When you have these traumas that aren't addressed, that is purely where the addiction starts. And Gabor Matis speaks to, uh, to, to that a lot. But back to this study, 2019 is when this started. And 2019 was when I got fascinated with the research that was happening around the world. And today, almost every major university in the world is studying psychedelics and mushrooms at some capacity. 2019, mm -hmm. John Hopkins was leading the way. And one of the studies that they put, put together, they, they took 300 participants and it was about half male, half female. 36% of those participants qualified for severe alcoholism. So about seven years of, of addiction. Um, pretty similar to where I was at in my story with my addiction. That's where these people were at as well. So 36% mm -hmm. of the 300 took mushrooms, a macro dose of mushrooms. And generally speaking, a macro dose is anywhere from 3.5 grams all the way up to 12, somewhere okay. in there. And the truth is that after, the, after this mushroom macro dosing experiment that, that they went into the study, 78% of the participants no longer qualified for alcohol use disorder. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's absolutely bananas, to be honest. And so that was something that got me really interested because, of course, a lot of what I do is, is to try to give back to the addiction community, try to give back to the community that I, I feel really like I'm a part of. And I, My guess is that you, having walked down this path, and I, I can appreciate your background and your connection with that community, obviously, there there needs to be a strong connection there, and it, it's very valid given your background and, and the time you put towards it, but you would have gone down this path just for that reason, or my guess is that you've had a, a bigger vision of what the impact of these type of medicine can have on the general population, not just on people that are in that severe of a condition. Yeah. Absolutely. And after my experiments or my microdosing day 12, what I did before I even started the business was I got 40 participants. This has never been done, by the way, ever again. I've never seen this done anywhere. Public companies, it, I, it was the first microdosing study that existed at the time. And what I was interested in was of course the results. I wanted to know if this was real, but I was really interested in, in having a more purposeful entrepreneurial journey. And, mm -hmm. and so truthfully, what I did was I teamed up with a, with a guy with a background in psychology in Calgary, and we put together a 13, 13 simple questions. And to, to enter our study, quote unquote study, you, you, you can never have ever microdose previous to this. 
So I thought it was going to be challenging to get 40 people to want to join this. I threw it up into the wind and within two days, 40 people called and said, I want to be a part of this. So, I think these discussions are gaining traction very quickly. They really are, man. And, and so I'll just give you an idea as to what some of the questions were. We asked people to rank their anxiety, their current level anxiety from a scale of zero to 10, their current level of depression, their current mental health level, their current levels of brain fog, their current levels of creativity, and so on. And then, of course, COVID hit. So the Friday that I was going to do this massive presentation, we had to transition to doing this online. And, and so everybody joined the Slack group. And I provided the medicine for 40 people. And at the end of it, we had them run the exact same questionnaire. I hired a company to tally the data. And I share this on our website if anybody's interested to see it. But the way the needle moved in these people's lives in such a short amount of time was enough to make your jaw hit the floor. To me, it was so important that we move this forward, but it's always been so important that we do this the right way. And those um, were, to, just to understand that study a little bit further, like Johns Hopkins, to your point, there was a significant percentage that had a significant problem that the, the medicine tried to help them with. The 40 or so people that were in your study were, were just generally average people? Yeah, just everyday people like us. And what we're interested in microdosing had been following maybe some of the stuff that Tim Ferriss was talking about. Look who it is. Hey, Scott. What's up, brother? Hey, man. Surprise appearance. Hey, Scott, we're in the middle. We've got Conrad needed to jump, but we've got a great discussion going with Keegan. So we appreciate you jumping in. We'll let you just hop in and, and see where you jump in. Keegan, just to, to clarify a little bit around that, you mentioned when we were thinking about the macro versus micro that the macro, if you go big enough, it could show you some things that you need to see, right? And, and I can get that. That makes sense. It's a big enough experience. But on the micro level, how do you get to a place where in such a short amount of time, you start to get enough people that show a significant impact? What, is, what happens on that micro level on a consistent basis? Yeah, really good question, man. So from a science perspective, I, I just want to explain what is actually happening with the brain when it comes to using mushrooms. Because once you understand this piece, it all comes together. So there was a researcher, his name's Robin Carhart Harris. He was working at the Imperial College of London. And just like John Hopkins, the Imperial College of London was doing tremendous work with psychedelics. And I, I don't remember the year, I believe it was 2020, but they were trying to figure out exactly what was going on with the brain when you were using mushrooms. And their hypothesis was that there must be some fireworks that are going on in the brain. There's got to be some overactivity that was happening. And what they came to find out was in the back right portion of your brain, there's this little place, it's called the default mode network. And when you have that voice in your head that is saying that you're not enough, you're not good enough, or why did I do that? That voice that appears in all of us sometimes, that's in your default mode network. So people that have addiction issues are really caught up in their default mode network. People with PTSD, OCD, eating disorders, people that have tremendous egos, this is really the, the place in their brain that they, they live in. And so what, what they came to find out with their research 
was the cerebral blood flow that went to this portion of the brain was actually shortcutted. And because of that, your brain starts to communicate with other areas of your brain that normally never talk to each other. And they start to create new neural pathways. So new ways of thinking, new behaviors begin to, to start. So I wanted to share that because that is the fascinating raw science behind it, that once you understand that mushrooms have the ability to, to create these new neural pathways, it, it, mushrooms start to make a bit more sense. No, and I, I appreciate you. The, the default mode network, now that you say that, rings a bell and it makes so much sense when you start to think about it. We all have this mode that we can settle back into if we're not, if our attention isn't held for whatever reason on something else, we can sink back inside. And I think that self-talk becomes exceptionally important. And you heard me chat about sports at the beginning of this. I talk, so I coach uh, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, and that I'm constantly talking to them. Self-talk is so important. Like you, you made that mistake. You missed that shot. Self-talk. Don't be getting down on yourself. And I, I can understand that when you get into that default mode, if you don't have that right mental clarity and you're not saying the right things to yourself, you can spiral pretty quickly. 100%, man. 100%. And so in microdosing, again, we're talking about sub-perceptual amounts of psilocybin, anywhere from 0.10, like one-tenth of a gram to... 250 milligrams, which is a quarter of a gram. <laughs> and that's really where we focus. Our products, um, yeah, are, are really, I think the best way to say it, in my opinion, is it's almost this like really delicate way of being able to drop the veil that is holding you back. And the people that are putting in the work, people that are working on themselves, trying to become the best version of themselves, when you introduce microdosing to those people that are doing the yoga, the breath work, trying to eat healthy, getting the exercise, like you mentioned. Um, and I think even more importantly, talking to a therapist, talking to a therapist when microdosing is completely different than talking to a therapist when you're not microdosing. And I know this because I've been in therapy nonstop for years, still am to this day. But my difference between not microdosing was you're in, the, you're in this room with a therapist for an hour. Sometimes it would take me to minute 55 to even know what the hell I wanted to talk about. But when I started microdosing and going to therapy, I was able to almost immediately go right to that trauma, know exactly what I wanted to talk about. And it was just a really easy, delicate way to, to approach some of the harder work. And that to me is what microdosing is. There's an enormous application for people with depression, anxiety, PTSD, um, OCD, but there's also this enormous application for the people that are biohackers, the athletes. I know very few athletes today that aren't microdosing, very few. And so we can get into that a little bit if you'd like. Any questions that you guys have, Happy to traverse any anything that you that might be on your mind. Scott, anything on top of mind for you? You might be stuck. Keegan, yeah. So the, the I guess the part that I've got um for you, and I know we're coming up on time here, but we could always do this again because I think that this is a a very good discussion and, and B, I want us to be able to have uh Scott's input on some of this too. And I think there's a lot of ground for that we can still cover. But the interesting part for me is 
when you start to feel those changes and you start to think about, hey, I've got this clarity, when does that start to show up and how do you know? Is this something that people can measure or is this something where you've got to do some self-experiment? Because clearly we're on the fringes of what people are doing and, and what science is saying uh, the general population can be doing. So to some degree, it feels like there's got to be a little bit of that self-experimentation. But how do you know when it's doing the things you want it to do? Honestly, I, I think that's why journaling is so important with this. This isn't a magic pill. And I want to be so clear about this. This isn't something that you just reach for and pop in your mouth like an SSRI and just expect results. This is something that if you're really ready to get to the next level in your life um, and you are combining the medicine with the other with the other activities that I was speaking of, the other healing modalities that I've been speaking about, the breath work, the yoga, the meditation, the exercise, the, the going to therapy, I have never in the history of this business, and we are now talking about tens of thousands of people, I've never not seen anybody have uh, a positive experience with microdosing. Who this is not for are, there's two, and I think it's important to speak about this, if you're bipolar or if you have a history of schizophrenia, this is something that you, you're not going to want to traverse. This is not something for you at this point in time. And so that's something really important. But that leaves 5% of the rest of us that can very safely explore this stuff. But in my experience with it, if you're just looking at this and just popping a pill and just hoping that you're going to see change, it's not going to work for you. And, and having a journal and looking back over your week, it could be something so subtle, Adam, like normally you freak out in a traffic jam, but after microdosing and, and, and journaling, you go, you know what? I was listening to music. I was having a great conversation with my daughter in the car. And I, what I noticed was the traffic didn't bug me as much. So it's these subtle little tiny changes that start to really add themselves up over time. It's that conversation with a colleague that used to just get under your skin. Yeah. And now it's like, you know what? I'm just gonna politely listen and it's not gonna ruin the rest of my day like it usually does. Let's dig in there just a little bit because I know we're coming up on time, but I wanna talk about an important piece. And I think that the distinction you're making there of this underlying feeling of well being is something that I think we're all looking for. And there are a lot of different modalities as, you, as you've mentioned and, and we've discussed, right? I, and I, I advocate all of those. I think all of those, and to your point, this isn't, hey, let's choose one and that's the one that's gonna get us to a place of well-being. I think this is a balance and let's try a lot of different things and make sure that we're healthy across a lot of different fronts. But I think that one of the, the challenges that we have in the US is we do tend to push pharmaceuticals and in my house, we we try to avoid even taking Advil and, and Tylenol if we don't have to, just be, because of that reason. It feels like the expectation is, hey, you got a problem, just take a pill and you'll be good. So we've got a culture that has pushed pharmaceuticals towards us as, hey, there's a solution. We'll give it to you. Don't worry about whatever the side effects are. Just take this and, and go away. But then the other challenge with that is that you're sitting in Canada and you've got access to this that we might not have. When And most of our audience is probably going to be in the U.S. 
So what, what are your thoughts when you think about the challenges that the U.S. market has? And you already mentioned the high numbers of, of addiction. I'm sure the same could be said for stress and depression and all the other pieces that go along with that. So what do what our listeners in the U.S., how should we start thinking about, A, potentially maybe getting away from the SRIs or, or what the difference in those might be? And then B, how could we start to potentially make use of what you're trying to do up in Canada? Yeah, man. just to share a little bit more on that, 140 million Americans are classified with depression and anxiety. 75 million Americans are on an SSRI medication today. The challenge with SSRI medication is it's, it's like taking, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. The truth is most people... I don't know if you guys know much about SSRIs. The suicidal ideations that happen on SSRIs go through the roof. Weight gain, loss of sexual function, all sorts of side effects happen with SSRIs. And I think most importantly, the thing that you need to know, that whatever it is that you're taking the SSRI for, when you stop taking that, and you that trauma that you're running away from, or the trauma that maybe you're not addressing, it doesn't go away. And so I talk to people all the time, literally thousands of people that have been on these SSRIs. It's something that I'm extraordinarily passionate about is that is helping people find a way off, helping people safely find a way off. There is some strong research today now, finally, that microdosing can be used as a bridge to help you get off of these SSRI medications. Although we can't ship down into the U.S., there are safe sources. You'd have to do some digging when it comes to defining mushrooms. But half of the products that we sell are totally legal to ship down to the U.S., functional mushroom products that can be very helpful for depression and anxiety as well. So the one, because obviously there are a wide variety of mushrooms and there's plenty of mushrooms that are legal. But there are products that you're selling that will also have similar impacts that will remove the psilocybin that you can still have some of the benefits that you're discussing. Yeah, absolutely, man. We have a product. It's called Happy Days. It's ashwagandha, lion's mane mushroom, cordyceps, holy basil, and black pepper. And this product is about as close to the feeling of a microdose that you're ever going to get. Completely 100% legal. And, and it, it, it helps balance cortisol levels in your body. And honestly, it gives you this uplift and a little bit of energy as well. So we make products. You, you're welcome to come check out the website, mindfulmeds.io, or join us on our Instagram community, mindfulmeds underscore CA, and just come and learn. Our intention isn't just about supplying these meds. It's about giving the right information and providing the right education is really one of our core values. Adam, Scott, thanks for bringing me on. Um, super grateful to be here. You're right. This conversation, it, we're just getting, it's just getting started. And so maybe we do a yeah, round two at some point. Yeah, no question. But I guess before we close, Keegan, what is your thoughts around 
legality. And, and I think we've touched on some of it because I, one thing I'd like to do with all these podcasts is have some sort of actionable items for people that are listening. And I think the first actionable item for me is, hey, there's enough products that are close enough to this that Keegan and his team have put together that you can start to walk down this path. It's not going to be the full experience, but you can at least start to walk down that path. The next question that comes to me is around legality. And I know Canada's already crossed that path and they're figuring out how they can do this in a healthful way, but people can also have access to the things that they want to have access to. What is your sense in the US? You're mentioning that we've got these studies and these are significant studies with significant universities and, and science-backed studies. What is your sense around legality? And I know we're not, we can't predict the future, but you've got a pretty good pulse on it. Where do you think legality is going to go over the next few years? Yeah, good question, man. I, I was in Vancouver on Saturday. I was, uh, I went to a TEDx and one of the speakers is a friend of mine and actually a colleague of mine, Kelsey Sheeran. She's a combat veteran and she owns a company called Breath and Unity. But there wasn't a dry eye in the building when she came out and started to speak about the statistics behind our veterans, our police, fire and medical. The people that we rely on to call when you and I are in trouble these people need our help more than ever today. Just in Canada alone, 44 veterans a day are committing suicide. So if you took the math and extrapolated that down in the U.S., dude, I, the number is appalling. And mm -hmm. so when it comes to policing, I can tell you that every major police union in our country is starting to look at this and realize, okay, our brothers and sisters are leaving this industry they're riddled with PTSD. They, they have some of the highest addiction rates out of any job in the, in the world, honestly. And the suicide rates are the highest in the world. Even policing now needs to take a serious look at how can they start making an impact on mental health? And at least mm -hmm. here in Canada, mushrooms and psychedelics are starting to get looked at as a potential medicine. And, and I hope that the same is happening down in the U.S., it, it, this isn't completely fully legal up here in Canada either, but the truth is because of these issues, right? When you look at fentanyl and I can use this, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of e-tastings in Vancouver, but yeah. it, it, man, you go from downtown Vancouver, there's a, it's called e-tastings and it's just littered with tents and addicts. It's very similar to Skid Row down in LA. Yep. And, in San Francisco, um, we're seeing the same thing. It's spreading for sure. Yeah. And the truth is that these police officers, the ones that are struggling, they are now spending most of their time dealing with the addicted community. Our firefighters, dude, are responding to overdoses at a rate that has never been seen before. There, I've got a friend who is actually on the, the fire department on the east side of Vancouver and he is narcanning between eight to 12 people a day. Oh my. Yeah, dude, and, and every major city has this right now. Think about the potential that mushrooms can have on helping curve the addiction rates that are plaguing our system. It's something I'm extremely passionate about, and uh, it's time that we really start looking at this, not as a drug, but as a medicine. And Adam, if you don't mind, there's one more thing I want to share with you guys. Please. One of the things that I, when I got into this work, wanted to make sure of is that I'm not taking the addicted community down a path where they're going to be addicted again to another substance. 
And here's the thing in, in my research with, with mushrooms. The biggest drug study ever done, ever in the history of time, was done here in North America, and then they replicated it in Europe. And what they were looking at is all the major drugs in the world, and it was two-pronged. They were looking at the damage it does to the individual and the damage it does to the people around them. And guess what the most damaging and harmful drug is in the world? I bet you can guess it. And off the top of my head, I'd have to go with alcohol, no? Alcohol, by a mile. Then it's heroin, opiates, and it, it goes down. And believe it or not, number nine on the list is cannabis. Cannabis can still be highly addictive. And I'm, I know that because I was addicted to it myself. But at number zero, and you got to remember, this was done in North America, replicated in Europe. The professor that put this together is this guy named Dr. David Nutt. And I recommend that everybody looks at this. If you go to our website and you sign up for our microdosing guide, it's in the guide. But at ground zero, zero, it's the safest drug in the world today. And I'm only saying drug because that's how it's framed in this study is mushrooms. And it's not even close, dude. There has never been an overdose in the history of mushrooms ever. And the safety profile on mushrooms is absolutely through the roof. It, that might be just a good way to wrap it up. No, it's amazing. And I totally agree. That's my perspective on it too. I mean, I've listened to Terrence McKenna for years and I understand his perspective on things. And if you think his perspective is totally far out and he talks about this stoned ape theory about how the evolution might've even come from mushrooms, it's, oh my gosh, this is millions of years old. This isn't something that we have just started to uncover. This is something that humanity has been walking alongside for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent, man. And, and so my thing with this is for people that are curious, the first place to go is just to get the research, go and understand it. And, and from there, you can start to make more of an educated decision. We don't sell our products. So what I mean by that is you'll never see me on a call trying to sell somebody our product ever. People, when they're ready, come to us. We provide the education. We have the most comprehensive and robust microdosing guide, I believe, in the world. And it's free on our website. It's 60 pages. We go really deep on it. But that study that I just spoke about is in there. And I, I highly recommend that people go and check it out. I love it, Keegan. I appreciate the time. I know we've gone over a little bit. We've actually dropped Conrad, dropped Scott. So it's just been me and you for most of this. But man, I really appreciate the, the time that you've given us. I appreciate the effort that you've put in. One, the background and the story that you helped us understand the path. But two, the, the work that you're putting in to try to better that addiction community, but bigger picture, trying to better overall society with some of the medicines you're bringing kudos to you for doing it. We've, we've got to have some trailblazers that are willing to put themselves out there and do some things that people don't necessarily agree with to make those changes. And I fully support what you're doing. And to that point, we definitely want to have you back sometime uh, in the near future so we can have the full group, but also get into some more details around this. Sounds good, buddy. Great to, awesome. great to put a face to the name we've been shouting for months. I know it's been a while. I appreciate you, you pulling this together and, and making the time. So for anybody who's listening, if you've enjoyed it and made it this far, please go to your app of choice and give us a review. We, we definitely appreciate those reviews. Since Conrad's not here, I guess I'll have to chime in with that. But Keegan, thank you so much. Look forward to staying in touch and we'll pull you back here sometime soon. My pleasure, brother. Have a great week. Have a good one. See you guys.